have a Bible with you. Hear God's word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come to your house this morning in great need for you to speak to us, to feed our souls. So we pray that you would send your spirit, that you would bring to life these words, and you would apply them into each one of our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, forgive the sins of the one who teaches. For Lord, you know that my sins are many. And I pray that through these words, you would give sight to the blind. You'd give hearing to the deaf. You would raise the dead. And that we would find life in your word and that your words would live inside of us and bear fruit. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're talking about counseling. And by counseling, I simply mean the skill of wisely talking to people about their lives. Simply having the wisdom to know how to talk to people about their lives, which I think is probably one of the most important skills that a Christian could have. You know, whether it's kind of talking to your neighbor or talking to someone you work with, talking to people in your family, friends, and just going to kind of a deeper level with them. The ability to talk about people's lives is a tremendous skill. That is, it's a great value just to our community, but also to, to our the broader community for us as a people to be able to do that. And um, Dan Allender, Dan Allender is a Christian psychologist, has a book called The Healing Path. And these, these are a few things that Dan Allender says. Few people are intrigued by others. Few people are intrigued by others. Now, most people don't care about other people's stories what they have lived and what's happened, they don't care. Few people actually have the curiosity to listen to other people's lives. They care about their own lives. 
Few people are intrigued by others. Few people follow up conversation with an invitation for others to tell their stories. We are rarely curious about each other's individual tastes, convictions, and interests, let alone the stories that provide the thematic structure to our lives. And then he says this, the past, a person's story that they lived, the past is the place we developed our deepest convictions about ourselves, life, and God. So what Allard is saying is that it's in a person's life, you know, over the years, they have, you think of all the experiences, all the relationships, all the, you know, events that have happened in people's lives, the home that they were brought up in, the, you know, the church or not in church that they were brought up, all of these things have formed a person's deepest passions, their deepest convictions, their whole understanding of the world, their understanding of relationships, their understanding of God. And so if we as Christians want to talk to people about those things, and that's what, when we speak to people about Jesus, that's what we're speaking about is all those things. If we want to speak about those things, we have to be willing to enter into that story because it's in that story where all those convictions were formed. And if we don't do that, Talking about Jesus just becomes kind of this arbitrary belief that, you know, if someone happens to believe in Jesus, then they get to go to heaven. It's like a ticket into heaven. And we don't want to talk about Jesus like that. We want to talk about Jesus as Jesus is the key that unlocks all the mysteries of the universe and what it means to be human and what relationships are and who God is. All the riddles are answered in him. And we want people's wonder to be awakened to, you know, all that God has revealed in the deepness of God's wisdom and love in Jesus. And we only can do that. People can only understand that when their lives are opened up and say, how does Jesus fit into my life? And this is what it means to be a counselor, is to enter into that story. And so how do we play the role of counselor to one another and to the people that God brings into our lives? And this passage in Ecclesiastes, I think, has five crucial lessons for us in learning to be a community of counselors. And I know I usually tell you the five things before. I'm going to tell you them as we go along, maybe just because they're longer. And, uh, but five important things that I think for us, if, if, if these five things shaped us as a community, we would have a huge, in many ways they do shape our community, we would have a huge impact in each other's lives, but also in the lives of our coworkers and family members and the people that God brings into our lives. So five things. The first is this. Counselors speak about ultimate truths. Counselors speak about ultimate truths. That, that is, counselors do not want to just talk about super, superficial matters. They want to go to a deeper level with people in their conversations. I know many of you feel that way. You know, I'd love to. I, want, I don't want to just talk about the weather and sports. I want to talk about, like, things that really matter, ultimate truths with people. And that's what counselors want. And you, and you see this in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. This is kind of a strange verse, but what it's essentially saying is, you know, when it says a good name is better than precious ointment, it's saying a, your name, your reputation, which is really your character. So who you are inwardly has far more gravity. It matters far more deeply than kind of your outer fragrance, you know, who you are on the outside. Who you are on the inside matters. It has more gravity than who you are on the outside. And he says it's the same with the day of birth, the day that you were born. It's kind of this joyful day, and everyone's happy, and we're naming the baby. Compared to the day of death, 
Ecclesiastes says, has far more gravity to it. Because when you think about the day of death, you start facing questions about who is God? What have I done with my life? Did I achieve my goals? What relationships did I prioritize? What are the things that really matter to me? All those questions come alive in the day of death. And so that's why it says in verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for it, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay to heart the questions of death and face those ultimate questions. They won't just stay on the surface. They'll go to those deeper questions. And what Ecclesiastes says is that the people who are really alive, whose lives are thriving, are people who will face those ultimate questions. Who is God? What is life about? What are my relations about? The, the questions that you're faced with in your death. And so counselors, what a counselor is, is someone that we trust enough to talk about those matters. And trust, of course, is an incredibly important uh, element in being a counselor, right? Because when we talk about things that are of ultimate matter, we only open up about those kinds of things with people that we really feel safe with. You know, they're not going to be pushy. They're not going to be arrogant with us. They're not going to, uh, you know, shove their beliefs down our throat kind of thing. People we feel safe with. Now, oftentimes, Christians will say, you know, People get so defensive when you want to talk about Jesus or talk about religion or talk about the Bible and they just, all these walls go up. And what, you know, I just want to have a conversation. I just want to talk about God. Why do people have to be so defensive and they want to change the subject? And why can't we just talk about this like civilized human beings? But as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised that people are defensive about these things. Of course they should. If we believe that talking about Jesus is the most important thing at the very core of a person's identity, we should, we should know that we are walking on guarded territory, sensitive territory. And so a wise counselor says, okay, on the one hand, I don't want to just talk about trifles, sports and weather, and, you know, all those things are good to talk about. That's fine. I have no problem with them. But I want to go deeper with people as well. But I know that going deeper with people is I'm going into guarded territory. And if I arrogantly storm into that territory with people, if I act like I know everything and I don't have a sense in which, you know, I'm learning, I'm willing to learn with you, there's a sense of humility and compassion, then they're going to shut me out. And so if I'm curious about people, who are you? What is your story? I want to know you. And I'm gentle in that curiosity. People will let you into that territory because ultimately they want to talk about it. Most people want someone that they feel like they can safely talk about the things that ultimately matter in the world to them. And that's why 1 Peter 3.15, this is what Peter says. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Always be ready to talk about Jesus any chance you get. But yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Know that you are walking into, you know, the tender areas of a person's soul, the deep chambers of who they are. And we must be careful as we walk into those areas. Now, you might ask, of course, well, why, are, why do people guard it? Why is it so guarded? These ultimate truths about who God is, who I am, what my story is, all these things, what my deepest passions are. Why is that so guarded? Well, the first thing that we have to realize is we don't know. 
We don't know why those areas are guarded. Actually, they're guarded for different reasons with everyone. And we should not assume that we know why these topics are guarded for people. It could be, you know, that they've had really bad experiences with Christians. They just don't really like having conversations with Christians. And so, you know, it might take a while to build some trust with them. Or it maybe they grew up in a church where they just felt oppressed and there were all kinds of burdens that were put on them and they felt manipulated and they felt no freedom or no love in the church. And so, you know, all kinds of walls go up anytime you mention the Bible or anything like that. Or it could be that, you know, they have shame in their lives that they know that there's things that are scary for them to face about things that they've done and start talking about God means they're going to have to face any of those things. But what we do know is that the reason people are guarded is generally because of some kind of pain in their lives. People are guarded because of some kind of pain in their lives. And this is where it leads to the second thing, is that not just the counselors speak about ultimate truths. They want to go to deeper levels with people. But second, counselors... Go with people to the house of mourning. This great image in, in Ecclesiastes about the house of mourning, the, the, the place of pain, the place of sadness for people. And these are some of my favorite verses in, in Ecclesiastes. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Those are profound words. It is through sadness that you lead to joy. The, how, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And this amazing passage says that if you want to find the path to joy, the only path to joy is through sadness. And actually, my family just watched movie Inside Out. If you haven't seen Inside Out, you are missing out. We just watched it for the second time this last week. I was glad in, to watch it in preparation for this sermon. But if, what Inside Out is about, children's uh, movie about an 11-year-old girl, and the story is about her emotions. There's these five characters that play her emotions. Joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And there's this whole adventure that kind of happens in her inner world of her psyche with uh, primarily with joy and sadness. And the beginning of the movie is all about joy trying to have sadness not touch anything. Just sad, and she actually draws a circle on the ground. She says, sadness, I just want you to stay in the circle and don't touch anything. And you know, it's very much how our culture is. Our culture thinks, think positively. I only want to be around people who give me positive energy. And, uh, and don't let sadness, don't let negativity touch anything. And of course, you know, it's wise to think about the people that you're putting yourself around. But what Inside Out teaches us is this great lesson is that joy is trying to get sadness to not do anything. And the whole movie is about joy actually having to learn to follow sadness's lead. And that sadness is the only one that can bring the, the girl, uh, I forget the girl's name, uh, to, to joy. And, and for all of her emotions to kind of come together and for be, her to be a whole and mature person, is she had to follow sadness. That's exactly what Ecclesiastes says, is that if we're unwilling to go to the house of mourning, about the areas of mourning in our life, we will not find true, profound joy. And, you know, I, I have to share with you a, where I learned this. Um, I, 
um, I've, I've told many of you that when I was a, a teenager, I got sent away by my parents for a year and a half to a boys' behavioral modification program. I was in a lot of trouble. And in this program, we had these seminars that we went through, and one of them was called Focus. It was a three-day seminar where you deal with a lot of the shame that you, you know, that uh, 15-year-old boy for all the shameful things I'd done, you face a lot of the shame. It's a really painful uh, um, uh, seminar. And one of the ways that they kind of awaken this shame is we did this visualization. You probably have about 50 kids in a room about this size who lie down on the floor and they tell this story about how you want to uh, a cruise, you know, at the mall where they have those things where you put in the thing to win a cruise, and, and in this visualization, you close your eyes, you won the cruise, and you get to invite all the people you love onto this cruise. So everyone's there with you. It's this three-day thing, and you're just being charming, and everyone's so glad to see you, and you're so happy, and then every night you go into this deep, deep sleep, and, you know, and they're just relaxing your body, and everything's relaxed, and everything's going well. And then all of a sudden, all the staff people come around while your eyes are closed with pots and pans, and they start slamming the pots and pans together. Your heart stops. And they say, shipwreck, everybody up. Your cruise is going down. And so everyone gets in a circle. And they say, uh, there's one lifeboat, and only three people here get to live. And you have to give a vote to everyone here, whether they live or they die. So you go around, and the vast, actually, I, I was very emotional. I, I voted everyone to die. I didn't even give three you lives. And, uh, and in, this, in this process, I go around, and I, you, know, you say you die, and you have a staff person right next to you who says, that's what you said to your mom when you walked out of the house and said you wanted nothing to do with them. And when you dropped out of school and you ran away from home, you, you die. That's your mom. That's your dad. That's your brother. That's your sister. And I'm just like sobbing, just, you know, snot coming out, just, you die. And, and I'm feeling this tremendous shame of just spreading death everywhere in my life. And that was the house of mourning right there, the sorrows of the real sorrows in my life, and to face that. And, of course, that was an important thing, to realize the shame that was in my life, to feel that to actually begin to lead to the joy of finding that in Christ, my, all these deaths that I had spread had been forgiven in him. And that was the path towards joy. And, uh, you know, Dan Allender, who I mentioned before, he wrote this book, The Healing Path, he also tells a story about uh, going to get his haircut. He was a hairstylist, and, you know, he sits down, he'd never met this woman before, and they just start chit-chatting. And... Uh, she says, you know, that her husband has left for a year in the military to be in Korea. And um, during their conversation, she says, oh, yeah, he won't be back until August. Today's our anniversary. He called me this morning, and I hung up on him. And he's like, oh, nice to meet you. Okay, all of a sudden, these problems in your marriage, I'm just meeting you cutting hair, and you're opening up about some pain that is inside of you and some of your story. And this is what Allender says. The stylist would not have mentioned the situation with her husband if she didn't want to talk. She is inviting conversation. But she does so abruptly and with some hostility, making it difficult to pursue her heart. If one is aware of the push, don't shame me, and the pull, don't leave me, 
She can step into the middle terrain and invite an interaction. And this, he goes on later to say this, people in pain want to talk. They are very forgiving of our errors. As long as we are neither pushy nor arrogant, we can bumble and learn. The reward is enormous. What all this to say is if we want to experience and walk with people as they come to know who God is, to come to know that there's real grace and love in Jesus, it only happens if we're willing to walk with them to the house of mourning and you are around people all the time who are giving you little flashes like this hairstylist of what's really happening in their life. And if you gently and curiously enter into that, people want to talk to you about those sorrows. And it is in those sorrows that they meet God. But by the way, you know, I should say that uh, you only know how to go to the house of mourning with other people if you have gone to the house of mourning for yourself. And uh, you will only know how to walk there with them if you yourself have not run away from the house of mourning and always lived in the house of feasting. And so this is, uh, so counselors go with people to the house of mourning. And so, you know, th what this says is the first point about being a counselor in someone's life is that you're an interested, curious listener who wants to go deeper than the superficial with people. You, you, you want to go down to ultimate matters. And you are particularly interested in going to the house of mourning. That is the place of tragedy, of disappointment, of loss, of shame. Because you know that in all of those things, that's where people are going to meet God. Now, I think that many people in our culture would probably sympathize with a lot of what I'm saying so far. Yes, be a good listener. I think that's a, you know, hear people's stories. We resonate with that. There's another part of being a counselor in this story, though, that might be a little more foreign to us, and this may be a little jarring after the second point, but the third thing that we learned about counselors is that counselors should, at times, rebuke people. They listen, they're trusting, they're safe, but that does not mean that they never say a challenging word. Speak the truth in love. And you see this in verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For the crackling of thorns under a pot is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So this is a great verse. It warns us about just wanting to be happy and have fun and keep everything peaceful is the path of fools. And uh, there are times to both give and to receive hard words from people. Now, I should say, as a general rule of thumb, I think we should be slow to rebuke people. And actually, you know, it's very common for counselors to say they never tell anyone what they should do. It just is a rule of thumb for, for many counselors. You, you never rebuke someone or say, this is what you need to do. You never even give them advice. You just ask them leading questions and let the person come to them, their conclusions themselves. And actually, I'd say there's a good bit of wisdom in that. Um, I've learned that as a pastor that by far the most powerful challenges that come to people are not when I say something to someone, but when someone's a Christian, they've been in the church, and they know what the Bible says, and I say, well, what do you think the Holy Spirit is telling you to do about this? 
and what comes out of their mouth is exactly the right thing that they should be doing, or they rebuke themselves with their own words. And, and I'll tell you, that's far more powerful than anything I was going to say for them to say it themselves. And so I think that that is the, uh, the first thing, is to believe that the Spirit is the one who, who challenges and, and convicts people's hearts. And we don't have to be the ones to do it. But there are people that either don't know the Bible, or they know the Bible and they're ignoring it conveniently forgetting it, and there is a time for someone to speak a word of truth to them. And um, let me just say that it should be our expectation as a church that all of us, at some point in our life together, someone's going to have to challenge me and say a hard word. I mean, it should just be my default expectation. We are all a bunch of sinners who Jesus has gathered together to be a family. I'll just tell you, as the pastor of the church, I've had plenty of times already in the last six years where elders or, you know, people in the congregation have had to correct me and say, you know, you didn't handle that right or that's not the right thing to say. And you need, and, and it, so because of who we are in Christ, because of the gospel, that we know we're loved in Jesus, we're secure in his love, we should be able to receive that correction. We should be able to invite it. And we should prepare ourselves that when someone comes and gets, speaks that hard word to me, I'm, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to listen to it. And you should also be aware that when someone does that, they challenge you and they kind of confront you about something, they're probably going to do it wrong at least, you know, 20, 30%, 50% of it is probably wrong. You know, they're probably frustrated with you for some reason. And so they're half frustrated with you and trying to help you by speaking a word in love. And so we can... Think about how are we going to receive that? Am I going to receive that with defensiveness? Am I going to close up? Or am I going to say that the Holy Spirit has brought this person into my life and I'm going to listen to them? And one of the things that we have to be prepared for is that a rebuke hurts. It always hurts. And this is what it says, Psalm 141. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head, let my head not refuse it. So that being rebuked is like a blow, which we should know that if we're ever giving a rebuke. We are hurting someone when we do that. And we should only do it if we know that sometimes there is a hurt that is in love. And Counselors should at times rebuke people. Now, for most of us, we probably fall into one of two categories. There's some of us that have maybe never said a challenging word to anyone in our life, and that kind of horrifies us to think of, I'm going to confront someone about something. And, and that's, that's, that might be an area that you need to grow and to think, would I ever, if, if the Spirit makes it clear that I need to speak to someone or I need to address someone or confront someone about something, would I trust God and enter into that conversation and say, Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak to them, and I'll do it. I'll give me words of love, but words of truth. That might be you. For some of us, it's a little too easy to give rebukes, right? They just kind of, maybe it's your no filter and just whatever you think kind of comes out. Or it could be that you, you really have a, there's a self-righteousness in you. They think you know better than everyone else, and you feel it's your duty to correct every error that you see in the people around us. And that's an error as well, that we're not slow to rebuke. Now, if that's you, then the fourth 
um, uh, the fourth insight that this passage gives uh, may be for you, and that's this. Counselors understand that change is gradual. A good counselor understands that when someone's life is changing, it is a gradual change, and it happens over time. And it's kind of like a tree. You know, if you try to watch a tree grow, you won't see it growing. But, but let the tree be in the garden for a year, and you come back, and you're like, you know, wow, this tree is really flourishing. And that's going to be more what our experiences of people in our community is not that lightning strikes and their life is totally changed. It's going to be, wow, they've been here for a couple years, and you are a totally different person. And that's how change happens. And verse 8, this is what it says in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. What this tells us is to be patient, not get angry and frustrated when people don't change at the pace that we want them to. It's going to be slow. And you know, if you make it your habit of being curious about people's stories, and you know, I, I invite, I want to hear more about what's happening in people's lives and where they grew up and what, where their convictions were formed. And what you're going to find out is all kinds of people have had all kinds of really terrible experiences that they've had. You know, maybe they grew up in a, in a home as a, as a child that was just brutal. And you think all of a sudden God's bringing them out of, uh, you know, maybe 18 years of just being, you know, a critical spirit over them or just anger and no freedom and no security or no protection. And all of a sudden they plop that person down into our church. And God gives them a new family. And God says, I'm now your father. And I've given you new brothers and sisters. And you have Jesus, your older brother, who, who protects you and guides you and teaches you. What we should expect was that if all the things that they learned in that first family took 18 years, to come into a new family and learn the ways of the new family, it might take 18 years <laughs> to learn all those new things. It might, actually, it's going to take a lifetime. And so that should be our expectation, is that people are going to come in, and they're going to make progress, and they're going to they're slip up, and then they're going to learn new things, and then they're, they're going to be, you know, plateau for a little bit. And we're just patiently waiting for one another. And I think that this is one of the most important things um, for us to understand about the culture of our church. To be a church that is centered on grace is that we give one another that space. There is space to grow. There is time to grow. We've got a lifetime. We're going to come every Sunday. We're going to love each other. We're going to worship God, and we're going to learn the gospel in deeper and deeper ways. And gradually over time, Christ is going to be formed in us. And so good counselors understand that change is gradual. Now, what inspires us as a community to be patient like that? I say, you know, I'm, gonna let, I don't, I'm not going to expect people to instantly be changed. What inspires us to be patient? It's the gospel. Because the, look at how God has treated us. We look at, you know, I have sins that I've struggled with for decades. I don't know, you know, I have sins that, we all have sins that we probably have confessed thousands of times. Maybe, you know, who knows how many times, over and over again, and ongoing sins that we may even have our whole life. And does God just say, you know what, I'm done with you, 
you, I expected you to come into my house and be changed. No, he's patient. He brings us in. He teaches us. He, he knows that we're going to sin. He knows that we're going to struggle. And he gives us that time. And if God has given us that time, then we need to give each other that time. And so this leads to the fifth insight from this passage that is important for us to, as counselors. Let me just review briefly. This passage tells us that counselors want to talk about ultimate truths. Counselors go with people to the house of mourning. Counselors at times rebuke people. And fourth, counselors understand that change is gradual. It is, is a slow process. But the last thing is that counselors should point people to the goodness of God. When you are playing the role of a counselor in someone's life, this is, I would say this is the biggest question that someone is asking is, do I trust in the goodness of God? Because you think of all the things that someone goes to a, a, see a counselor for, anxiety. You know, what's at the root of anxiety? I don't, I don't think God's going to protect me or provide for me. I don't trust it, and, and so I'm anxious. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm fearful. If I'm self-protective, I'm, I'm defensive. I don't feel secure in God's love for me, that God loves me, and I know that, I, that I'm accepted, and I'm approved by him, and, and that I don't need to win other people's approval. I don't need to prove myself to others. If, I, if I'm depressed, you know, why don't I get out of bed? It's because I have no hope for the day that's ahead of me. I have no hope that God is gonna, has dreams that are going to be fulfilled for me and that he's going to bear fruit through me. He's going to do great things for me. I have no expectation of that, so why should I even get out of bed? All of these things are tied into our understanding, is God really good and will he care for me? Now, that doesn't mean that if you're struggling with any of those things that it's just like, well, just believe God's good and then they'll all be fixed. No, believing that God is good is a lifetime of internalizing that truth. It takes a lifetime to really learn to rest in that. But that is the journey that we are on, is because that's essentially what sin is, is saying God doesn't want good things for me, so I'm going to take control of my own life. And so repentance is saying I'm beginning to learn to trust in God's goodness again. And counselors are leading people in showing people in their own lives and in the scriptures and through their own presence, that God indeed is good. And you see this here in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. To say that life was better before and what's ahead is only sorrow. God only has bad things in the future for me. That's something that we have to unlearn. That God has good plans for me. Even the hard things will be him working in my life and to begin to trust in his goodness as I go into the future. And what Jesus does is he takes lost sheep, people who have, all of us who have shut ourselves off from God, we've walled people out and we live this life of self-sufficiency and independence and isolation. And he says, I'm going to take you, I'm going to put you in this new family so that you can taste and see that I am good. And this is going to take time. You're going to have breakthroughs. You're going to have setbacks. But I'm going to slowly train your heart to trust in my goodness. And I'll just tell you, one of the ways that a counselor shows someone God's goodness is by the counselor's very presence. The fact that you listen to a person's story and you care is you are showing them on the spot that maybe there is a God who is alive and is actually good and loves me and cares for me. You are communicating that truth on the spot. 
And what we are is we are a community of people that Jesus has come into our lives. He says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I will listen to all your prayers. You can say anything to me about what you're struggling in your life, and my attention will be on you. And I will teach you, and I'll instruct you, and I'll bring people into your life. And because God has done that for us, Jesus has become our counselor. When we know him, we will become a people of counselors, both to one another and uh, to the neighbors that we have here in Bellingham and Whatcom County. So may God train us and give us many opportunities to hear the stories of the people around us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you know us, the very hairs on our heads. And uh, we thank you that you bring people into our lives to speak to us about your goodness, about ultimate truths. We pray that you would train us as a community, that we would have courage and wisdom to not stay at a superficial level with one another and with people, but talk about the deep matters of life, the matters that the living ought to lay to heart. And so uh, we pray that your spirit the great counselor that you have given to us would train our hearts and minds and lead us into many conversations that we may show by our presence and by our words and by our listening that there is a good God in heaven who loves those who are in pain. Take us to the house of mourning that we may learn true joy. In Jesus' name, amen.